If you're a senior executive looking to transition to boards, check out our Fast Start Guide to Board Success. In this short guide, we'll answer all of your questions about landing a paid board role and we'll share some of the rookie errors executives make when trying to climb the board ladder. Jump on our website, boardcoachinginstitute.com.au or click on the link in the show notes to access your free copy today. If you're looking for board success, let us show you how. Hello and welcome to Insider Insights, where you get to meet non-executive directors and go inside their boardroom. Today we're joined by Dr. Delis Samuel, who will give us her unique perspective of board life and offer up some hints and tips to help you to succeed too. Delif has spent almost 20 years juggling full-time work with board work. Her first role was a state-appointed role as a result of her industry expertise with the International Fibre Centre. She's recently completed five years as a secretary of the local tennis club and today served on the board at the Mulgrave Country Club. So join me now and let's hear from our insider, Dr. Delif Samuel. So Delif, welcome. It's great to have you here today. Thanks, Sally. It's really great you asked me. I'm really curious to know about your career because you have a long and fascinating industry in textiles. Tell us a bit about your background and how you got your first ball break. All right. Okay. So I kind of have have uh, done related diversification through my career. We call it they they call it pivoting now because that's the trendy word, but. Um, basically, I got a PhD and a degree in textiles from Leeds University in the UK. And I, that's where I met my husband, who's Australian, and I came over to Australia. So my first role here was in the textile industry. And I was the technical manager of a commission printing company for about three years. And that all sort of fell over, got made redundant, ended up teaching for a couple of semesters at RMIT in a course that was sort of textile related um, back then and from there got appointed to work in R&D in the Walmart company which I knew from the UK which is why I sort of applied for the role so I ended up doing research program management I was there for about five years decided that I needed to know a lot more stuff and consequently I quit that job after about five years and I undertook an MBA full-time and that was a major change in my life if you like because up to that point with the PhD, and particularly here in Australia, you're seen as a bit of a nerdy R&D person. And I wanted to get more of the management skills and so on that when I had been at university, I thought were a bit, you know, what's management all about? There's all the technical stuff's really good. And so I did that. And that, that I suppose, changed my career. It changed my networks, changed the people that I knew, and also opened my eyes up to the idea that you didn't have to let life happen to you you could actually set some goals and think about, well, where do I want to be in five, 10 years time, which it's sort of, I've gone through my life to that point, I suppose, I'll do this stuff because it's interesting and because it appeals to me. And and I still, to an extent, apply that today. But um, so one of the things that you do when you do an MBA and you meet all your friends and you have all your new networks and stuff, and you've done lots of group projects and assignments, one of the things also, you know, a lot of people said, well, we want to be on boards, you know, that's a really good goal to uh, aim for as an outcome of, you know, new qualifications, moving in different directions. And so on. so it was always in the back of my mind that, you know, that that's where I want to get to. 
And so at the end of my MBA, I actually had my third child during that process. It took a little bit longer because I'd done it full time and I had to drop back to part time to finish it off. I ended up working on um, a book on organisational performance with a professor of strategy there. And that's kind of how I segued into organisational performance review, evaluation, strategy and all that sort of thing. But always in that innovation research space, which I really, um, I don't know, just appeals to my brain. That, that's what I enjoy. Where's the future growth going to come from? And it was always a challenge for me because here in Australia, there's a lot of focus on efficiency and productivity rather than, or that's how it struck me when I first came here from the UK, um, that, that the focus was on that rather than where is the future revenue, the product pipeline, 10 years time looking. So I'm forward looking around those things. And anyway, um, I got... I was in the textile thing and I was interested in contributing. I was a member of the Textile Institute, which is the professional body or association for, for textiles, sort of a global thing, but not huge in Australia and, and mainly because the textile industry here is quite small. It was a lot bigger if you go back 25 years ago, but it was pretty non-existent. And I was also a member of another one called the Society of Dyers and Colorists, again, a quite specialist in coloration and dyeing, etc. I had been on the committee for that institute. I can't even remember what my role was now. I'd have to have a look. And um, and got the monthly magazine from them. And in that, I'd noticed one month that there was an ad saying, would you like to be on an advisory committee for, for something or another? Literally can't even remember what that was. But I thought, you know what? I'll throw my hat in the ring. So I wrote them a letter and I... Um, said, you know, I'd be very interested to contribute to the development of the industry, et cetera, if you like, in Australia. And I got a I got a knockback. I didn't didn't um get on that, didn't get picked, didn't get selected, but oh whatever. Um finished my MBA at that point, got a job working at Melbourne University, um Melbourne University private then in their commercialization company. And not long after I had started that, I got a phone call from the person that I'd written that letter to maybe at least six months earlier, probably even longer, saying, look, you know, you didn't get on this, but I've got this opportunity to be on a on a board. Would you be interested? I said, yeah, that sounds good. I thought, I was quietly thinking that sounds even better than an advisory committee, so I'm happy with that. And um, so I went along and I met with him, and he was the acting CEO of the organisation. And I met with him and I met with the chair of the board who at that point in time was the deputy speaker of the house so we met in the um parliament of victoria and so the private dining room so it was very swanky and very and um, so everybody decided they liked everybody and that was it i got uh said you're it you're on and uh then i got a formal letter from the minister of education of the state victorian government because it was turned out it was that so i knew nothing about all of this and how it was a just went along with the flow of it and I ended up on that board at that point it was not remunerated but about halfway through I ended up being on that board for seven years um, they bought everything in line on those sort of state government boards and they made it be um, whatever the sitting rate is if you're on a TAFE board or, or, or equivalent so it, not much it was maybe 250 a day something like that and I was also on um, was also on the subcommittee for the project selection. So 
we used to fund projects in the textile industry to improve the textile industry in Victoria. And so I was on that board for about seven years. We used to go down, the board meetings were in Geelong, so the International Fibre Centre is what it was called. And it had been, before I sort of was on the board, it had been this Jeff Kennett vision to bring textile manufacturing back to Victoria and value add to the wool that was produced um, in Australia. And the meeting, the first meeting I, I was there for was the meeting where they reported the sale of the last piece of equipment they had bought under that division. And they were turning into this more focused organisation, basically, that was handing out money to support the education and training in the um, in the textile and fibre industries in Victoria. So that's kind of where it was. I had seven years on there, as I mentioned before, and it was a really good learning experience for me. I mean, I didn't know what I was getting into to start with, but um, they did support me to do the uh, Australian Institute of Company Directors course, which was a big deal. You know, so a lot of those, I think a lot of those organisations, they do have funding for that director education and because they're a non-profit and so on they negotiate better rates with the AICD and stuff like that so that's the point at which I joined the AICD and got the qualifications such as so that was the key that was a huge benefit that came out of that plus the whole learning how boards operate and what they do so that was my first board appointment. So you make that sound really haphazard you know like I, I went and did this and I went and did that but the stars all aligned right it, you were collecting yeah. all the right skills and experiences and in the right place at the right time and doing the right things all the way you've done a lot of um extracurricular work around committees and advisory type yeah. activities along that way so it wasn't kind of you know one day you woke up and on this magical day this role appeared you put in all the, <laughs> the hard work and it sounds like yeah. you had a goal there so you had some intention that this is going to yeah. happen in my future and I'm a firm believer that once you state that intention that you know the universe kind of conspires for your success anyway yeah I think I I, I totally agree because I, I don't think unless you've got that goal mapped out you don't know that that's the opportunity and you go aha you know, so yes. you, you know that it's right and it's the right fit. I mean, the opportunity to get that, that course was worth $10,000. Yes, I put a yeah. lot of time and a lot of effort in, but it was in an area that I personally was very interested in and had an affinity for and a passion for. I don't know if I would have done it for any old random thing, but textiles, I, I, we talked about it before. I've got it. I love my fabric collection. So yeah. I, I love textiles yeah. to this day. I also yeah. go around feeling everything in the shops and go, oh, that's rubbish. I wouldn't that polyester city in Australia not natural fiber girl so I like my wool like my silk like my cotton and um so you know those those things I, I just love and and I sometimes wonder what would have happened if I'd stayed in the textile industry or connected in manufacturing in some way because I I really love the idea about of, of making something of creating some tangible value so we've all moved a lot into service industries and stuff like that but I, I really like making something and, so, and standing back and going I made that happen I contributed yes. to that you know isn't that a lovely okay. thing so I still really like making stuff but so the, I'm hearing um, textiles is your passion what is there a purpose that's aligned to it I'm hearing that you like making things you like seeing uh, things eventuate 
is there a purpose that's aligned to your passion for textiles? I think the theme that runs through my career has always been like this new product development, new service development, the idea, you know, that idea about looking forward, where's the next thing coming from? So that's, that's been a consistent theme throughout my career and yeah. everything that I've done. It's like making something that didn't exist before now exists. And so I've always sort of enjoyed that and being very project focused and, and being clear about being deliverable. So be able to stand back. So choices that I have made in my life, everything that I do, I look at, okay, so what can I deliver from that? What is the value that I can create from being part of that? So everything on my CV, I'd like to think that's what I did with that. So I don't want to keep doing more of the same. I'm always looking for something that, yeah. that is different that I can learn from, but also delivers value, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I don't, you know, the people talk about people having 20 years experience and stuff like that. My 20 years is, is a lot of different experiences over 20 years, not the same experience every year for 20 years yeah and some people I, go I would, broad and some go deep so yeah I would be bored out of my brain if I did the same thing day in day yeah. out I it just that's just not me so I sort of have stuck to that thing that I do things because I find them interesting or I feel like I can contribute value or that and that the thing that I will do makes a difference to the organization too as well as giving me a learning opportunity so I look at being the secretary of the tennis club that I've just finished five years on. I think I finished in May when we had our AGM. And, um, you know, that, that was a really fun project for me. I, it had a 1982 constitution that looked disgusting. It was a photocopy of a photocopy of a fax, I think. And, and we, had to, we had to basically get that updated to the Community Affairs Victoria version. So that meant running the AGM meant running doing the special meetings coming up with special resolutions going through the process the the biggest hurdle with those old constitutions was the original time thing that you do with that you had to write to everybody and you had to send everything by mail and um you know that was the nightmare so that was year one and then in year two because we got it through the special resolution in the first agm you're now able to digitally communicate with people but of course, they had no digital assets. No, the logo wasn't digital. So going through all those processes, setting up things like Mailchimp for member communication, setting up online invoicing for things because you've yeah. got all these members, but hey, what they haven't been paying their memberships and all that sort of. Thing. So that was a really nice thing that I've sort of handed over now after five years, and it and it's taken five years because it's not a full time job. You're doing things in a in a slow way it's working all with volunteers and um but you know you can look back on things like that and you feel like you've made a real difference to something that that's what motivates me I think yeah I'm smiling when you say about photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy yeah. because of a fax I've actually worked with a board where when I've asked for the constitution uh, yeah. they haven't got it they, they just Everyone assumed yeah. everyone else had it and they just couldn't physically locate their constitution. And that's, that's crazy when they're, you know, the constitution sets out the whole purpose for the business yeah. and we're not, we're not even looking at the document or referring to yeah. it. And, but that's a problem with a lot of community organisations and I think it's a systemic and structural problem in that, you know, the, the tennis club, for example, who had the same committee. You know, these, these organisations have committees on for years and years and years. 
a lot of them are older because they're the ones that are given the time to the community thing, but they don't necessarily have the digital skills and assets. And yeah. I, I, have to, I have to tell you this one because it just cracked me up. So our treasurer, lovely guy, was doing stuff every, every month. And luckily, um, my husband was the president, actually. Um, and so I got sucked into being the secretary on this, I have to say. I was sort of, what do they call it, seconded for special duty. And um, the treasurer, he would do his financial reports and he was doing them on Word. And I've, I've met a lot of people in my life that don't know how to use Excel. I'm doing it on Word. And look, the financials weren't terribly complicated. That's okay. So I asked him, could he send me for the annual report all the different um, months, you know, the, the, the 12 months of treasurer's reports and <laughs> I, 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 look, I found out through that process that every month he would type over the previous month's reports print them off bring them to the meeting there was no saved copy of it because he was working off a 386 computer that didn't have the memory or the capacity <laughs> to do this thing it was just pure dumb luck that I'd asked the question. I said to my husband, where am I going to get the financials from? And he, and, he, and he said, well, luckily, he saved every copy from every meeting that was handed out. We were able to scan them. And, of course, then we were able to fix it. But you don't, you don't even think those things. When you've worked in the corporate world, you take it for granted that everyone's yeah. got a computer. Everybody's got these things. And, and, yeah. and they don't necessarily, particularly on those types of committees. It was so funny. You, you've just hit on a really great point there because the boardroom is no place for assumptions, right? You just, yeah. you just do not assume anything in a boardroom. To assume that the financial controller might be keeping historical records, that's a bit dangerous. <laughs> uh, and, and so a lot of those community clubs, one of the big issues they've got is, and you don't get the turnover committees and you don't get the volunteers that want to be on it because that administrative side of it has grown and grown and grown. And the requirements to report to, you know, council, to Community Affairs of Victoria, the tennis club, we also do reports into Tennis Victoria. Everybody wants a piece of the action. Um, and they don't, the, the reporting's not harmonised. So you have to do slightly different things for each report you do. So it's actually very onerous for uh, volunteers. So it's not surprising that they don't have the records like that. But the other thing is there is no central repository for all of that information. So you know, it's on your C drive. And so you might have, I, I did the whole ceremonial thing of copying everything onto a stick and handing it over to my husband. Now, we got a Dropbox. Uh, but it was my personal Dropbox that we were using, we we're trying to share. So clubs don't necessarily have the funds to have the infrastructure of those things. It's interesting. But um, yeah. I think there's a few problems with community clubs. Notwithstanding that, they're a really good opportunity for people yeah. to uh, earn their stripes, if you like. Yeah. I think the turnover is one of their biggest challenges. People get onto those committees. They see the volume of the work. They they do what they can, they work hard, they contribute, they become a resource in some in some circumstances. Yeah. And then they're burnt out and they do 12 months and they're so fast to get out of there that we're literally sort of handing the baton to the next person. Yeah. Where, um, you know, you rely and on that's that person. Where some, yeah. And that's where some of those sporting bodies, I think, can play a better role. Tennis has done a few things, like they've, they've introduced a thing called Club Spark into the equation where... 
they've got systems to um, about membership, but this is more about the governance documents that I'm talking. There doesn't really yeah. seem to be a great solution for that. And clubs generally don't have the money to subscribe to some of the cloud-based solutions. There, there are yeah. things out there, but they're really more expensive than I think some of the clubs are willing yeah. to pay for it. So I yeah. think councils and so on have probably got more responsibility there than they currently take if they want yeah. the governance and the reporting. So, you know. Yeah, and I, I think that's one of the challenges of board work in Australia, that you've got this multi-layered environment. I think there's more than 700 pieces of legislation that impact on, yeah. on business. So, you know, you, you've got oh, the, the state level, you've got the Fed level, you've got the, um, the, the things for associations, the things for listed boards, then you've got your industry regulations, and then you've got yeah. the your health and safety and your competition law and consumer law. Yeah. And there's so many different pieces coming at you that if you are not-for-profit, a small organisation, you've still got the same weight of all those laws yeah. and regulations. You've still got the same responsibilities as any director in any organisation. Yeah, correct. But you haven't got the resource. You just haven't. I mean, exactly, exactly. I mean, it's a great, great, it's a great opportunity to learn and to get your head around all this stuff and and there are resources so for example tennis victoria put on resources and they and they try and help you but it yeah. certainly was massive massive advantage for me both having an mba but also having the company director stuff and some board experience already so yeah. into that secretary role really you now i just i just self-helped on google how to write a special resolution like, yeah okay, but the word you know but to a certain extent, they were lucky to have you because yeah. in my experience, it's not always um, highly skilled people on those associations. A yeah. lot of the time you get, you know, very well-meaning um, yeah. members of the community that think it's a cup of tea and a chocolate biscuit and a chance to get together yeah. once a month and really don't understand the work yeah. that goes on in those boardrooms they're, they're quite hectic yeah no it's it's true that that is true I mean I had quite a lot of fun with it because I did go in there quite experienced in that regard and and I enjoyed it and I had a very clear understanding of all the things that needed to be done and yeah and organized and I just systematically kind of worked through them over a five-year period I suppose and, and we got yeah. ourselves real because in that time we entered into a memorandum of, under, memorandum of understanding with another organization which is I'm now on their board another member association and so I'll explain that again in a, in a minute but we would not have been able to enter into that arrangement if we hadn't got our own house in order yeah. to then yeah. set up a memorandum of understanding. There's not, never in a million years would have be, we have been in a position to enter into that agreement if we hadn't sorted ourselves out um, and got our constitution yeah. organised, got our contracts organised, got everything. Because we wouldn't have been able to say, okay, out of this MOU, this is... Uh, what we need out of it and this is what you need we wouldn't have had that clarity it just wouldn't have happened and that actually has been um, a huge huge coup for us in our sector because what it what we've our memorandum of understanding is basically organized that the members of this particular um, other entity are honorary members of ours and then we have a whole bunch of underpinning arrangements underneath that which is effectively secured our financial sustainability 
Right. So we still do a little bit of fundraising here and there, the odd Bunnings barbecues when you are allowed to do them and um, a few bits and pieces like that. But uh, on the whole, we don't have to do that anymore. We can just focus on the organisation of the sport, which is what people join those clubs to do in the first yeah. place. And then they yeah. get sucked into this vortex of hideous, hideous reporting and governance and people wanting stuff off you all the time. And, and it's just, it's like wading through concrete, I think, sometimes trying to get to the end point of, yeah. we're just running this community club on behalf of council to enable sport in the community, but you're making our lives so miserable and awful. So that that's just my, it, it's a sector, I think, that needs sorting out. But notwithstanding yeah. that, it's a great opportunity to um, learn things. And for the last five years, I kept trying to appeal to our junior membership base. You know, we've got uh, people playing that are 16, 17, 18, whatever, going to university. What a great opportunity. Come on the board, join the thing, represent your age group, learn how to do this governance. And I, I just couldn't get anyone on, which is probably my, my biggest disappointment is that I couldn't persuade some of the younger people to get on to learn use yeah. that as a launching pad for other things to differentiate them on their on their kind yeah. of cv from other people yeah. as well so that's probably the one thing that it didn't achieve that i would really have liked to have seen happen yeah and i think part of that is about changing the perception of boards as well the the more younger people we get onto boards, the younger those boards become and the more enticing they are for the young people you yeah. you, you don't find many young people on the boards and, um, I, and I think, you know, they're, they're a perfect place to start. You know, people like looking yeah. and so on. If you're a member of a club, you know, that put your hand up. It's unbelievable how few people put their hands up. And to me, they're such a great opportunity to, um, to, to learn the basics and, and not go in as that person with no board experience. Yeah, and also to represent your own interests, right? To yeah. tell that board what 17-year-olds want out of tennis, you know, because what... The 17-year-old wants out of tennis can be very different to what the 35-year-old and the 55-year-old want out of Correct. tennis. Correct. So, yeah. yeah, very interesting. So, you know, it's have a voice, you know, that sort of thing. So there are opportunities and there are loads of things. I'm sure people can find things that interest them. Uh, tennis has just been a huge part of my family yeah. and, and my family's life. That that was just, you know, if you can't beat them, join them kind of yeah. um, thing. But I, I, I love how all of... I love how all of your board roles are aligned to things you love. They're aligned to textiles and tennis. And yeah. It's, so, it's, yeah, so, so actually the reason I had to set down off as secretary of the um, board that I'm on is that I'm now on another board for the company that we entered into the MOU with. So this is how you see how this sort of relatedness comes yeah. into it. And But the, the entity that I just joined the board for, it's over a year actually, um, is it's called Mulgrave Country Club, but it, it's actually probably a, a social club. It's in the hospitality, gaming, and liquor industry, and that's added a whole new bunch of things to the the um, knowledge base because it's, it's the gambling, tourism. You know, it's got poker yeah. machines, which, which a lot of people think are not socially acceptable. So I'm working my way through working out how all of this all fits together, and and obviously it's highly highly regulated and that's been closed now for I don't know how many weeks. So there's no income or revenue coming in. But those organisations by legislation have to donate a whole bunch of money 
they pay a tax and, and all that sort of stuff anyway, but they also have to donate money to community projects and so on. And I was looking at the data the other day and quite apart from the own things that they support, they I think 300 or 1,000 had been spent and gifted to community groups and, and you know, cerebral palsy stuff, but other sports groups, footy clubs, et cetera, et cetera, in the community. So we were meant to be doing a whole bunch of strategic planning in April and that unfortunately got put by the wayside. And so the whole... <laughs> the whole strategic situation has changed massively. And, yeah. you know, we've been closed 100% twice. So they're doing some takeaway meals and things like that. But that, that'll be an interesting board meeting next week. Um, so in that role, I'm on the subcommittee for the sport. So that particular club provides its membership with uh, tennis, golf, squash, bowls, snooker. Yeah, snooker competition. I did have cricket, but cricket stopped. So you could join all these different sports things, and I'm on the committee for that. And so that was um, part of the rules were that I couldn't be on the committee for any of the sports sections represented by that entity. Yeah. Uh, hence, yeah. I dropped the secretary thing, and I'm on the on the subcommittee for the sports uh, and on the board. So that's to, to manage conflicts of interest in terms yes. of how funding. Yeah is kind of allocated. So I'm quite looking forward to that because I have been able to secure a University of Melbourne project team that are going to look at the sports um, membership and the project starts next week and it's going to be about, you know, what should our sports membership look like in 10 years time if we were really thriving and successful as a sports club what would people be saying about us, all that sort of thing? What would our membership profile look like? It's a, so I'm really, really interested because they're quite an analytical bunch. I've seen the student profiles. They're postgraduate students in the college um, business and economics at Melbourne. Never had a, a, a business project before, but you, know, you talk about closing the loop around. The person who organises those projects is someone who used to work for one of my really close friends who... Um, when I did the MBA. So that's how go. I sort of got that wheels within. There's always wheels within wheels somewhere. Yes. So I'm quite excited about that. Because instead of this thing being sort of sitting underneath whatever the strategy was that said in April, we've had to flip it around and it'll be yes. what are our options and choices if we're thinking about these things in sport that will then become a major input to the strategy yeah. process for the yeah. overall thing when we finally get to to do that so that, uh, that's why you know quite excited that that's a bit of a fun project um, yeah for the year. That's, that's really interesting you've talked about a lot of challenges there i love how the same kind of traits keep coming across in all of your examples you're obviously very forward thinking you know how's this going to look in 10 years time yeah you've obviously got the inquiry in mind we, we often talk about curiosity being the key trait for a board director you've you've got to wonder you can't yeah. assume anything you've, you've always got yeah. to be curious so you've obviously got those key traits what advice would you have for anybody who's looking for their first board role yeah look it's a really it's a really tricky one because from my personal experience you know I'm a member of women on boards and things like that and those roles come up I think my personal experience is it's through networks and people that you know. I think 
it, when it comes down to a choice on paper, and it's probably the same for applying for jobs, if people kind of know of you or have some experience of you, you've got an advantage over someone who's just, they don't know from a bar of soap from what you've written on the piece of paper. And so that's why I think you have to plan for this as a sort of, know where you want to end up, but you've got to have like steps along the way that could help you get there which is why I talked a bit about the, the sports board and the community board, because those organisations really are crying out for someone to help them. But you have to be a bit authentic about it. You can't just turn up at a club, join tomorrow and go, I want to be on your board now. Like it needs to be something that, that you're interested in and appeals to you in yeah. some sort of way. Yeah. Um, so I see all the time things on women on boards that are advertised, but literally, and, and every now and again, I'll put in an application, but, only for things that really interest me because you can't be vanilla about this stuff I think I think it has to resonate and you've just got to keep trying you, you know I've had plenty of knockbacks plenty of things have happened that I that I've put up my hand for I thought wow I'm supremely qualified for that but clearly somebody else didn't think so and it's like well it is what it is so I don't think it's personal um I've been on the other side of appointing people for committees and things like that. And sometimes they just want a good geographic spread of people. And it's as simple as that. And they've already got two people mm -hmm. from where you're from. So it's not a reflection on you necessarily. So I think you have to be really clear about why you want to do it. And I see for me that being on boards is part of a portfolio of everything that I do. So I teach strategy at RMIT to postgraduate students and strategy and innovation has always been my thing. So design thinking, voice of the customer. Again, getting the requirements for innovation. So it's always that future looking kind of stuff. But I also do that work and I apply a lot of the things that I teach in the projects that I do for individual clients. And then the next thing, and most of them are quite senior, they're high, you know, senior executives in organisations, in smaller organisations, but they're reporting to the CEO or they are the CEO and then they have to report to a board. So understanding what boards are looking for as well is helpful in how you shape the services that you offer. So it's a bit of a virtuous circle. So for me, the board roles, as much yeah. as anything, can I contribute? Can I make a difference? Because if I can't make a difference, I'm really, what's the point? Like I've got other things to do with my time and my life um is my contribution going to be valued or not so i have had a board situation a role where i probably asked too many questions and there were things that they didn't want people to find out yeah. and so hustled not renewed on that board and you know what i never felt any regret for that i'm a bit annoyed that 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 happened and that and that the thing that in my value judgment was not correct didn't get acted on but I didn't, it never upset me that I felt like I, fin I finished up there with stuff that was unfinished, if that makes sense, because yeah. I knew that I yeah. couldn't do any more anyway, because if that's where they're at, it doesn't matter how many times you bang your head up against a brick wall. Mm -hmm. If they're not going to move from that position, there's no value in time. Yes, I was being paid, but it wasn't much. It was maybe 600 bucks a day or something. Who cares? You know, that doesn't matter anymore. But so for me, nothing more frustrating than banging my head up against a brick wall. If I can't make a difference and I can't make a, a valuable contribution 
and all people want you to do is be a, a body in a chair that rubber stamps what they're doing anyway. That doesn't interest me. So you've got to you've got to think through some of those sorts of things um, about how you value your own time as well. Yeah. Um, in, um, in hindsight, was there anything you could do in terms of upfront due diligence that might have exposed some of that information to you, or was it just that was consequential of being on that board? Yeah, it's interesting. That, so a couple of boards I got on, one of them was the, which I will talk and, and mention, was the Cooperative Research Centre's one. Fantastic. I was on that board for five years. It was about long-term research and research efforts, about um, collaborations that would solve Australia big challenges. It's such a fantastic board. What a great set of people on that board. No question was the wrong question. Uh, everybody liked to be challenged because they didn't want to be the smartest person in the room. They wanted to surround themselves with smart people. Yeah. Such an enjoyable board to be on and five years of really fantastic work. And I don't know how I got appointed to that. I don't know who nominated me. So some of these things you don't actually apply for. You get tapped on the shoulder. So that was that. So this other one, I was all similarly tapped on the shoulder. So I thought, this is great, you know, because I finished this other one but it wasn't the same experience. So I've had, I had, I could say the Cooperative Research Centre's board, I was on, what a fantastic, fantastic board. No question was a stupid question. Now I was interested on some boards where you're a bit afraid to ask a question. And, and what I have learned through the years is that a lot of questions, if you've got a question, you probably need to find someone on the board that you feel safe talking to where you can say, look, I'm thinking this, I'm not, I'm not sure about this, I'm a little bit uncomfortable about this, and have, you don't have the conversation in the boardroom. Um, yeah, that's good advice. Some, a, lot of the, a lot of the times, I, and it took me a little while to, to kind of learn that process, that a lot of the conversations I sort of had, and the boardroom process in many respects is, is running through things quite quickly, not a huge amount of discussion and some people are under, they, they think it's a really good thing to do a, a board meeting in record time. <laughs> so, so some of it, they don't want to have that discussion. So I think you need to find quite quickly someone on the board, if you get appointed to a board, that you're comfortable to have a conversation with about things that you're not sure about. Um, yeah. It might be the chair, it might not be the chair. Um, but typically, if you want to if you want to question something that's going on in that board meeting, you do need to have a conversation with the chair before you um, yeah. get into the board meeting. Because it's, again, it's a, it's a no surprises rule. You don't want to sideline someone without giving them the heads up, if you like. You're uncomfortable with something. You don't fully agree with the, what's being put in front of you because that need, they need to work out how they're going to manage that with the board. So you do yeah. have to have a, a relationship with the chair. I think yeah. to to do that. So that's one of the things that I'd learned. I thought, you know, at first you had all these discussions at the board. No, you don't. You have them. You have them before, before going there. You have to read your papers. I mean, it will. Yeah. It, it, a lot of time reading the papers and working through it and, and making your notes on what you really want to ask. Um, it's not a random thought bubble discussion in a boardroom. Yeah, it's not, you know, turn up and we'll flip through these papers while we're here. It's all preparation. I love what yeah. you said there about um, vanilla, you know, doing the roles that are a bit vanilla and not aligned to your purpose. Because so I was thinking, as you said, that as you're building your board career, 
as you're starting to progress for those bigger, juicier roles, if you like, the roles, you know, that you've been aiming for, if you've got a CV that shows some progression in terms of your passions yeah. or your pursuit, then that that's going to sort of um, put you in a good light for an interview. Whereas if you've got a, you know, a sporadic, ad hoc, moving around, different associations, bouncing around and there's no yeah. kind of correlation between the roles, then that might demonstrate that you've got a bit of experience and you've worked in different areas, but it's not really going to show any authenticity towards your board work, yeah. is it? Well, it, it's a funny it's a funny thing I sometimes ask myself the question because that that's me and and that authenticity part of it and the other thing you know the choices that you have with what you do with your time I often look at what men do <laughs> and I sort of think but I can't see any theme there or I can't see any connection there I can't see even a previous experience there but somehow they they're appointed for things that you can't clearly see that yeah. they're experienced for. And, and so I don't know. Sometimes I can't quite join the dots on some of those things. I'm not, yeah. I'm not really yeah. sure. So I, Mystery. I sometimes <laughs> wonder, should we, should we be thinking you know, more like men? But again, it, it's not that I, it's not about for me having, I'd, I'd always like to have one or two board roles on the go from that portfolio perspective of going with the other things that I do I don't know if I would just go for board roles just to have board roles I'm not sure I mean there's a lot of there's a lot of risk associated with these things as well like you know some of the some of the issues that are coming up from a governance perspective trading insolvent and that 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 would be really concerning right now with COVID-19 and all those sorts of things um yeah so it depends what, what your risk appetite is well and how yeah. ambitious you are in terms of being on these corporate um, boards or listed boards or things like that. But that that is yeah. not a type of organisation that I personally would be going for. Yeah. I've kind of got to a stage in my life where I think the community contribution is a bit more interesting or for me it's the contribution towards the advancement of the economy or the country, yeah. like a, a sort of forward-thinking R&D-ish kind of thing. And that's probably a whole other conversation there about whether it's a male-female thing or, you know, is it that that's the old way of doing things and people just went from board role to board role because of who they knew and now it's about passion and commitment and it's a different ball game. Is it because women traditionally are the, the, or have been the, the, the rearers of the children so they're in the community and they're more involved in the sporting pursuits and the schools and the kindies so they kind of gravitate towards those to help out because it's part of raising the children probably yeah. a, a whole another conversation but look I've loved um, listening to you today and hearing your story there's been some really fabulous pieces of advice in there so thank you for all of your sharing thank you so much. great to catch up I've taught, I've taught taught heaps, but I would like, if I can, just to add one more story yes. that was, you know, one of the questions you asked was about the challenges of being on the board. That, that very first board that I went on, the International Fibre Centre, I shouldn't mention names, but it doesn't exist as an organisation anymore anyway. But the CEO that I had the interview with, he was acting CEO. And he... Um, he had declared that he wasn't going to apply for the real CEO role and that 
one of the things that was going to happen when I first started on this board was there was going to be a CEO uh, interview and selection process. And so that was all fine. That was really good. And so they put it out and, and people applied and this guy came, came in that everyone was thinking, oh, you know, he's going to be really good. And then the acting CEO said he would, he would um, put his hand up too. So it was uh, probably one of the most awkward periods of my entire life where I was really split. This person had got me onto the board. They were now standing as CEO. It went down to a vote. It was pretty close on the wire. And this other guy got the job, not the acting CEO. The very next board meeting, the former acting CEO was there because he was acting CEO because he had been a board member before. Oh. And it was the most, oh, my God, um, awkward moment in my life. So that was, a, that was a real life challenge of something that had gone on that I would never in a million years have anticipated it was sort of a baptism by fire actually with my first one or two board meetings that that's one. a real sticky wicket that one because there's there's a an assumption we make that the ceo is competent they're great at what they do you know and we can just sort of work cohesively with that ceo to get all of our needs met but just sometimes just sometimes the ceo can cause a problem for the business. They can be too involved in the board. It can be too personal. I can't believe that um, CEO remuneration used to be with the CEO in the room in some board sometimes. Can you yeah. Doing yeah. a performance review with the, with the person sat there. That's incredible. Yeah, well, to, I, I mean, I know you're going to edit and do different bits of this, but this is actually a really interesting, talking about CEO remuneration, we actually went through that process. The, the board that I didn't get renewed on, the CEO remuneration, because remuneration can go up and up and up just purely by length of service beyond, if you like, what should be acceptable for that role if you went out to market again with someone new but because they've been there 10 years whatever it is it, it's sort of gone up and, but it's out of the sector so we had a really interesting case where the chair of the board he um he basically told the board well this is what i've agreed with the ceo blah 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 and this is what his remuneration in terms are going to be and we went hang on aren't you supposed to discuss that with us first and get some feedback on on this and this is where all the rot started setting in. Yeah. We, we uh, said, well, we think we should get the salary benchmarked. And we got, uh, I think, I'm not sure who did it, actually, um, Mercer or Hayes, someone who, who does salary benchmarking for the sector. So they did this whole process whereby they uh, interviewed people, understood the complexity of the role in the job, benchmarked it to various sectors and said, this is what it is. And, and it was significantly higher than it should have been and, and could have been a bit of an embarrassment to the the two governments Australian and New Zealand governments that were responsible if you like for that entity and um so that all that all went a bit to shit I mean <laughs> you really want to call it that because, because people were so, oh my god well you can't pay the person any less no you can't but then you have to work out how you're going to deal with that and handle it and and that's actually the beginning, if you like, of the uh, questioning that wasn't yeah. very popular. Um, but it is, it, it is what it is, you know, and, yeah. and you can see very easily how those remuneration things, there were a couple of things wrong there. Obviously, 
the, the way that it was approached hadn't involved the board in the feedback and the way that it should have in terms of the CEO performance. And, and then there was this overpayment issue. So yeah. everyone was sitting on a very nice wicket. So when you, when you, if, if you want to poke the bear, you've got to be really careful. Um, yeah. And, and yeah. you've got to be prepared for the outcomes that come out of that. But I actually personally don't regret it for a minute. I mean, I like to think that we made them feel uncomfortable and squirm a bit. But of course, at the end of the day, you could argue, well, they, they kind of, they're still there and a couple of other people are not. Um, so they, they get away with it they make it work for them but you've got to feel I think comfortable within yourself yeah um mm. that you've poked the bear because yes. the bear needed yes. to be poked <laughs> and that's why I asked the question about due diligence because you know yeah. you end up working with these people and you know you you can't you can't flee the sinking ship so if you can see that it's yeah. bad just walking away sometimes isn't enough you at least at least need to poke that bear a couple of times and then say look I've poked I've done my best and now I'm, I'm yeah. out of here and you've got to be prepared to walk away with it because people will yeah. accept things that you might not necessarily accept I mean we'd all love the luxury of of all these boards being put in front of us that we can do due diligence and say I choose that one yeah <laughs> but that's not wait the way that it works and yeah and and these things come up in in weird and wonderful ways and I think you just I think if you sort of flip back to what you said before you need the plan you need you need to think what am I really trying to achieve here why am I trying to achieve it what am I going to get out of it and what am I going to yeah. contribute to someone else so that yeah. and then you've got to get out there and you've got to let people know you're interested in opportunities but you've also got to put your hand up and I think um, you know there are lots of pro bono opportunities out there but my recommendation would be do your one or two but don't go nuts on it because you use those one or two to get what you need out of it and yes you're making a contribution that they need but you shouldn't be going pro bono for the rest of your life yeah. at some point yeah. you are an experienced director and you should be remunerated for your contribution and your time yeah and so my my tennis committee board and now I get an honorarium for the one that I am on currently but I've said well if you're not getting paid don't pay me I've, but it's not enough for me to worry about. So yeah. it's no skin off my nose in that sense. So I yeah. think, I think um, for me, it's not just about the money. Uh, it's about the contribution. Yeah. And you hear that a lot. You hear executive net, uh, professional, non-executive directors who have their paid work that fulfills all their kind of skill sets and drive and ambitions and then they have the not-for-profits that fulfill their passions and make them feel like they're contributing so you are able it's one of those yeah. few careers where you can balance the, the paid stuff with the the giving back stuff and you're still doing the yeah. same role it's been and that's why that's why you can't do too many of them because you still need to be paid somehow <laughs> yes yeah you do you've got to make an income right you can't you can't well I say you can't. I've spoken to Ned to only do not profit work, and that's you know that's their choice in life. But your income has to come from somewhere. So if you have the income coming in that you can do that, that's great. But if you don't have the income coming in, then yeah, it's got to pay. It's got to pay absolutely. Yeah. It's been absolutely wonderful speaking to you, Dalit. Thank you so much for your time today, and thank you for just being so open and honest and raw. There's a lot of fabulous advice there. Thank you. Mm. No problem at all. And I hope, I hope it, it's helpful and 
helps people work out what they want out of this. You've been listening to Insider Insights with Sally Parrish. Insider Insights is the place to meet non-executive directors and go inside their boardroom to learn from their experience. We hope you've discovered some great learnings today that you can apply to your board role. We look forward to your company on the next episode of Insider Insights.